Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a great episode for you today. You know what we should have done? What's that? Is for the intro song is we should have had a canoe with the music. I don't know that I that would have think that would have worked. worked. <laughs> that work. It's too peaceful, too serene. Yeah, it doesn't peaceful. go with our music very Today's well. Today's episode, we have Adam Schultz on the podcast. And I didn't know him by name, but tell us a little bit about who Adam I'm is. I'm just going to read his bio, which is uh, which is on Amazon. He's got a couple books, and I, and I pulled this off of there. Adam Schultz has been called one of Canada's greatest living explorers, and in 2018 was named the an explorer in residence of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, which is basically Canadian National Geographic. He is also a historian, archaeologist, geographer, and his book, Alone Against the North, was a number one bestseller. His second book, A History of Canada in 10 Maps, was also a national bestseller. Schultz holds a PhD from McMaster University, where his doctoral research examines the influence of indigenous oral traditions, had on explorers and fur traders in Canada and Canada, Canada, <laughs> Canada's subarctic and Pacific Northwest. He has done archaeology in four countries and enjoys long walks in the woods. <laughs> I don't know if he's single, but I don't know. If he, that's something and you put just, just how long of a walk in the woods did he do, Chris? Uh, so he went from, he basically crossed all of can, the Canadian Arctic on foot with a canoe. So not on foot. Well, both. I mean, it was a lot of both, right? Yeah, I mean, was, he had to was, do all these portages. And you think about it, there's not little pathways that they map out for you when you portage across, no, you like you do of, in the Boundary Waters. It's just everything he did was unexplored, untouched. Yeah, which is incredible. Uh, he has a new book out called Beyond the Trees, which you, which the link is in the show notes if you want to check the book out after hearing the episode, which I think... Most people would love to have this. Uh, there's an audiobook as well if you prefer audiobooks, which is I you know, spent a lot of time in the car driving all the way down to do the podcast with you since it's like an hour from my house. <laughs> so I do listen to a lot of audiobooks as well. So we talk about uh, exploring a lot on this podcast. And we've had a couple other explorers that don't drive on the podcast. So some of them right. do motorcycles, some of them climb mountains. I found Adam to be really, really interesting and really endearing. So I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about his trip across the Arctic. Before we do, Chris, let's talk about Petrolbox, though. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel. I got my latest uh, Petrolbox t-shirt on right I now. I, I really like it. Garage gear, they got stickers and publications in there. They're all sent to your doorstep every single month. It's a curated selection of kind of the latest and greatest gear in the industry, and they're doing it kind of tailored to your interests now, which is a new deal. If you're a European car guy, you'll get some more European-themed things. You got the uh, domestic guys, the JDM yep. stuff. It's really cool. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout. That'll get you $6 off your first order. So I want to give you a little bit of perspective on this journey before we have Adam on. Just a little paragraph here, a little quote from him. Okay. In total, including the doubling back I'd have to do on all the portages, it worked out to a distance of almost 4,000 kilometers. That is nearly 4,000 kilometers across the largest expanse of wilderness, free of roads and cities, yet remaining in the terrestrial world outside of Antarctica. Wow. So we're talking absolute isolation. 
absolute yeah, he, he talks epitome about, of exploration. He talks about all of his, as you put it, his animal friends that he encounters. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but these animals have never seen a human before. That's true. That's true. Some stinky dude coming across the whole, <laughs> the whole program with a, with a bug net on his head. Yeah, It's just crazy to think about. All right, let's bring on Adam. Hello? Mr. Adam Schultz, it's Chris calling from the Overcrest Podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I've got my co-host Jake here with me. Hello. Hi, Jake. You, uh, Hi. you have any questions or anything before we get started? Uh, no, I don't think so. You guys mostly talk about cars, I thought. Well, we, we do. We've had, uh, we do a lot of car stuff, but for me, um, just in the last probably three months, we've branched out a little bit and we're trying to do other things that aren't just cars because honestly, there's more to life than that. And, you know, we talk about exploration a lot on the podcast, uh, a lot. I'm my, my thing I always say is if you're not exploring, you might as well be dead. And when I watched your film, I looked at what you did and I said, well, there's the ultimate expression of, of exploration. Like in terms of penultimate expression of, of it, it's you, someone going out and being alone and isolated and doing it. And I really wanted to just have you on to talk about, you know, exploration, honestly, it, ambiguously. And of course I want to talk about your trip too, but just, you know, the ambiguous enigmatic parts of ex- exploration are really important. Yes. Yeah. I started in the Yukon in Western Canada And I went east from there, roughly along the Arctic Circle, almost 4,000 kilometers, over to the coast of Hudson Bay. And that's where I ended my journey. So basically, I just wanted to go across uh, that big swath of wilderness that makes up northern Canada. And it's one of the last, you know, real places that you can go to explore where you're really not really going to see anybody, no roads, no, no evidence of humanity, right? Absolutely. I and mean, when I think of wilderness, I think of the essence of wilderness as the absence of roads. I think I don't know what the actual statistic is, but I saw something like in the lower 48 states, the farthest you can possibly be from a road is only like 40 miles. Like, it's not very far at all. Where in Canada, you could be literally a thousand miles from the nearest road or inhabited place of any kind, like the nearest town, community, city, you name it. And uh, the heart of that wilderness is where I did my canoe journey alone across Canada's Arctic. I mean, it's a pretty special place. It's one of the only places left on planet Earth where you can still wander literally for months without seeing another human being, which I think is pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. And you wrote in your book, which which we'll get to in a little bit, about a ferry operator who saw you arrive uh, at the Mackenzie River, and he saw you for the first time. And um, in your book, you said, you said, when Morris saw me arrive, somewhat wearied from my hike, he looked me up and down and asked, what kind of drugs are you smoking? None, I assured him. And he says, so you're crazy then. And, you know, I looked at some of your interviews online and, and some of the uh, newspaper articles that have been written about you and some of the TV shows. And everybody always goes, you're crazy. You're, you're nuts. You're crazy. And I, I don't think you're crazy. And I'm probably one of the few <laughs> people that's going to ask you, you know, why does everybody think you're crazy when you're doing this? Because I don't, I don't think it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm crazy either. Uh, <laughs> but it is a common question I get asked. I don't. I think it's partly just the solo aspect. I mean, to me, it's, yeah, I actually have to think about it because I don't get it at all. To me, what I'm doing so far from being crazy is actually the most natural thing in the world. This is what I grew up doing. I love being outside in nature, in the forest. To me, it's actually something very relaxing and calm. So I'm always a little bit uh, bewildered when someone says that's crazy. But I guess that 
if I had to sit down and think about it and dissect it, it's the solo aspect that um, throws people off. It is not used to the, the idea of someone being alone in the wilderness for long periods of time and doing big, long journeys alone. Morris, the ferry operator, he had a little bit more firsthand knowledge, so he was speaking more specifically about you're canoeing alone against a current, like up really powerful rivers that could sweep away a motorboat. So how are you ever going to do that? That's crazy. But right. I, as I explained in the book, I had a very simple strategy to overcome uh, very powerful river currents and, you know, just slow and steady winds and rates. I was using some techniques like polling uh, to overcome wind and current. But yeah, I think overall, the, the main reason people say that is because they think if you go alone in the wilderness, uh, you must be a little bit odd or antisocial or crazy or something. You must have a death wish. Uh, but I don't have any of those things. I think it's actually something that people can really enjoy uh, once they get out of their comfort zone and familiarize themselves with it. I think that one of the things that people, I'm trying to figure out if you think people are scared of being alone, like alone with themselves, alone with their thoughts, like they don't know what they're going to do, what they're going to think about, how are they going to keep themselves entertained, you know, all of these different things that, you know, anybody that spends any time alone now, it's almost strange because nobody does it. Or are they just scared of, are they scared of death? Are they scared of the unknown? Are they scared of a bear or a musk ox or something like that? Which do you think it is? I think it's a bit of both. One, they think like, well, if you go alone in the wilderness, you must be antisocial or they have like some sort of image in their mind of a crazy hermit who lives in a cabin deep in the dark woods. Um, but then I think it's also that we have a sort of a, an outdoor culture that encourages people to have like a buddy system. Like we're not even really supposed to go swimming alone. You're always supposed to have a buddy when you go swimming and that's where we teach kids as growing up. And I'm swimming alone in like Arctic rivers and lakes. Um, so there's that safety culture that doesn't like it because they think, well, that's like, you know, reckless. You're, you're way out in the middle of nowhere, hundreds of miles from help. If anything went wrong, you could be eaten by a polar bear. Uh, you could be swept over a waterfall. You could have your canoe crushed by an ice flow. And this guy's out there entirely by himself. There's no safety crew. There's no medics on standby. Um, he's really alone. So there's a, there's a certain aspect of our kind of modern culture that really shies away from risk-taking. And they think everything should be done um, in like a buddy system. Like in wilderness canoeing in Canada, I'm not sure if it's the same in the U.S., but here in Canada, the culture is sort of like it encourages traveling in groups of like a minimum of six people divided into three canoes. So you have like a really big safety net should something go wrong, like the canoe gets destroyed in rapids or something like that. And in fact, I would say like for wilderness trips in Canada, even especially in Canada's far north, like groups of up to 10 people are pretty standard, even a dozen people. So it's partly that um, that makes people think, well, just one person is really really odd, like going alone across the Arctic, that's strange. But I, as I said before, I'm just trying to get inside their head when they call me that because I don't think it is strange. I think it's natural, and um, I actually really enjoy it. Do you think a little bit of the fear is because of the sensationalism of something like Bear Grylls where, you know, they're always always focusing on the absolute worst case scenario and whether it's Lester out or bear grills or alone in the wilderness or the show alone or whatever it is where they filmed it in British Columbia. It's always the worst Naked case. Naked and afraid. Yeah, How about it's, that it's one? always just like the, that nature is obviously nature. You need to respect nature, right? We all are aware that nature is ruthless, but why do we have to sensationalize the worst case scenarios at all time? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't watch, much TV myself. 
I guess that uh, danger sells and uh, the sensationalization <laughs> yeah. comes with the, tel- the territory. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think that I always say, you know, I, you know, I think the, I was, people ask me, what's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? And I say, well, it was like commuting when I lived in Sudbury, Ontario, like winter icy roads. Uh, I think you guys are you in Minnesota, so you know what that's yeah, right. Yeah. Like, driving on icy roads, I'd say that's probably more dangerous than anything I've done in the wilderness. Uh, canoeing and whatnot. So I think yeah, partly, yeah, people fear uh, the unfamiliar, the unknown. So if you don't actually go out and do those things in the wild, then it can look or sound uh, a lot more dangerous or risky than it actually is. Um, but if you're familiar with it, then it doesn't, it's not really the inherently risky thing that it might seem at first glance. So what kind of skill sets do you need to do something like this? What, like what, as a, if a guy that just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with being outdoors. I'm familiar with camping. I've been, you know, canoeing in the boundary waters. I'm not going to do what you did, but if let's say I wanted to, what kind of skill sets am I missing that I would need to do it? Well, I can only speak from my own experience, but like personally, I started off as kind of a, a woods person, like a woodsman before I got into canoeing. So right from the earliest age, I was always in the forest around my house. And my big passion was just learning how to identify all the different wild plants and mushrooms and trees, uh, what was edible, what was toxic, um, how to tell them apart, what you could do with them, making fire without matches, making shelters, all that kind of stuff was like my, that was my first love, that kind of bushcraft. Why, why, did, why did you get into that? What was it that tipped you in, into that bushcraft? Well, partly it was just where I grew up. Um, there wasn't any other neighbors or sidewalks or streetlights. Um, I looked out my bedroom window and it was just forest. And if I went out my front door or my back door, it was just woods. So that was just my playground. Like that's literally the playground we had was in the woods. And I used to just always go out there with my brother and my dog and learn about all the different trees out there. And that was, that was just, you know, my first school essentially was in the woods in the classroom there. And I just fell in love with it because it was natural. It just came with the territory, like playing hockey in Canada or getting to know the forest. Um, I think that's it's I like think the exploration really as a kid where you walk out the door and you get into the, the woods and stuff. I think that's something that a lot of little boys did. I, on a smaller scale, of course, I would always go in the backyard and we had my grandpa kept everything. He was a total uh, hoarder with anything. If it broke, he just put it in the backyard. <laughs> right, so my forest was like tetanus. Yeah, yeah, no, it, was, it was like 10 different washing machines that I like I rigged up to have like a tunnel and it was and I dragged them into the forest. And, and you spent a lot of time playing in the forest and. I just think it's something that, you know, little boys do. And obviously you've taken it to the next level. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was very deep into it. And I think maybe uh, I was lucky in school. We read some books uh, about the wilderness. Uh, there was a Canadian author by the name of Farley Mullet, and he was um, on the curriculum in the eighth grade. So as a 13-year-old, I got to read books about surviving in the Canadian wilderness. And I would count my lucky stars that we had that on the curriculum. Um, because it really resonated with me as a boy reading these wilderness survival stories in school. And that sort of complemented what I was already doing. And it made me want to like get more books out of the local library about bushcraft or wild edibles and take it to the next level and and expand my, my knowledge of these things. And I think it was really important though, because I think if you're exposed to that at a young age, then it becomes, um, more, it's not, it's not really scary anymore. It's a comfort thing, right? Like you're in your, your happy place being in the forest is where you want to be. And that sort of laid the foundation for everything I did later on, like 
learning about canoeing and all the technical aspects of canoeing and planning out my expedition uh, deeper into the wild. So it sounds like one of the skill sets is just the desire and the comfort of being able to want to do it and feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, I think that's true of um, any walk of life, like not just wilderness stuff, but if you're a musician or a filmmaker or you're a car person, uh, if you're passionate about it, then the pieces just sort of fall into place and everything's going to come a lot easier than if you're stuck doing something you don't really like, <laughs> then everything is a, is a struggle, right? right. So uh, this is, I was lucky because unlike a lot of people, I figured out what I wanted to do when I was still a little kid. And I'm lucky that I've got to keep going down that path in life. Um, so it all sort of came together naturally. So we always talk about the tools of exploration. For me, it's the car. I always drive out into the into the great American West and go out on gravel roads and just end up in the middle of nowhere and then just get out of the car and stand there and look around. So for me, the tool... Well, I have to say the middle of nowhere is relative in this yes. conversation. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's absolutely, the middle of nowhere as you can get in the United States is probably out in the, in the West. Um, for you, it seems like the yeah. tool is the canoe. And I want to hear about your canoe. And I, I, from watching your movie, uh, where everybody can see the movie on this. We'll link all this stuff in the show notes if anybody wants to take a look. It looks like a pretty badass canoe. Yes, yeah. Canoes are definitely like the uh, the way to go in Canada's wilderness, where there's just so many rivers and lakes, very similar to Minnesota, uh, at least in the summer months. In the winter, I snowshoe. Uh, but I've used a lot of different canoes. Actually, I used to build canoes with my father when I was a kid. We'd build birch bark canoes and cedar strip canoes. But for my journey across the Arctic, I wanted something a little more heavy-duty. So I had a Canadian company called Novacraft Canoe uh, build me a custom canoe for the journey across the Arctic. And they built it out of um, some cutting-edge materials that would be able to withstand everything I would possibly come across on my journey, like uh, jagged ice or granite rocks, uh, make it really strong but also flexible and light enough that I could carry it by myself for hundreds of miles on foot if need be. Um, So that was an important aspect of my journey as well. So you beat the hell out of that thing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it took an absolute beating. I mean, I'm just basically taking a canoe places canoes were never intended to go. Like, you know, you think of a river and you think of deep water and you're using a paddle, but not all rivers are like that, especially in the far north. There are rivers that are ankle deep. <laughs> Literally, the, the water comes up to your ankle and it's nothing but jagged rocks, serrated rocks everywhere. And that might go on for miles and miles. So I would drag the canoe heavily loaded with 150 pounds worth of gear in it. Uh, over these over these jagged rocks, and that's doing a lot of damage to the hull of the canoe, but uh, you don't really have a choice. Or there were places where I would come to nothing but tens of thousands of acres of ice, like just fields of drifting ice, and I would drive my canoe right across the ice, just listening to, to it crunch and gouge against the sides of the boat. Um, so by the end of my journey, yes, my canoe was very banged up. It had seen better days, and it needed some extensive repairs. But the main thing was, it got me home. It got me across. What have you, did you like hang it up on the wall above the mantle, above the fireplace? Where is this canoe now? <laughs> oh, no, I can see it right now looking out my window. Uh, it's, it's still a very much a canoe that I use all the time. It's not retired. I still take it on expeditions. So we've actually gone on many subsequent canoe journeys uh, after that one. And it'll have many years left. That's I hope. awesome. Uh, before I retire it. <laughs> so you brought 150 pounds worth of stuff with you. I mean, what 
what did you need to bring? Obviously, I, when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, you need a sleeping bag and a tent and some bear mace and maybe some granola bars, and then you're all set. <laughs> like, what, what, what I don't think you'd get very far, Chris. No, no, probably not. But I, what did you take? Oh, well, I think when I first started, I had around 180 pounds, but of course that declined as I went on. So when I was thinking in my mind of those, that shallow river where it was ankle deep, I was like, yeah, I was probably down to about 150 pounds there because the majority of the weight was actually just food rations. So that actually declined as I went on because I was eating through the food ration. That was mostly like clip, uh, clip bars and power bars and energy bars. Um, I mostly relied on those bars. I had like over a thousand total. And that was so I could just travel almost continuously. Like if I wasn't sleeping, I was usually traveling. I wouldn't stop for breakfast or lunch. I would just eat a bar every hour uh, to keep my energy up. And I could just canoe continuously or hike or whatever I had to do. So, so that's your the least favorite flavor, flavor at this point. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> is there a flavor uh, well, that you'll never eat again? Well, I never say never, but uh, <laughs> there's definitely some that I would... <laughs> passed up if there was something else on the menu. Uh, there was these, I tried to get the biggest variety possible because I wanted like, you know, a little bit of uh, diversity in my diet. So there was these vegan bars that I bought because they had like kale in them, but those ended up tasting like cardboard and I'd have to actually soak them over the side of my canoe in the lake uh, oh, before I could really choke them down. Yeah. By the end of my journey, like I had all the, the, the ones I didn't like left in the bottom of my food barrel because I'd been sorting through them day by day, pulling out the ones I actually like to eat. So by the end I had like, I was stuck with all the bars I didn't really want. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, uh, yeah, so that was the majority of my, that was the majority of the weight. Everything else was just essential gear. Uh, you know, like a hatchet, Twitch army knife. I brought two pairs of clothes, a lighter pair, and then a heavier pair for really cold weather when it was below freezing. Uh, you know, two jackets, all that sort of stuff. I had two first aid kits. I had about 30 pounds worth of camera gear, like a tripod, a lot of extra batteries, a couple of GoPros, another camera, like a Sony 4K, which is heavier. Uh, I had a small solar panel so I could recharge those, a bunch of cables to keep them working. And uh, I brought uh, Lord of the Rings, which I'd never read before. That was my one luxury. <laughs> Lord of the Rings so I could read in my tent at night. And I had some notebooks and journals, pens, pencils, just the bare essentials, really. So tell us a little bit about how you felt when you took your first step on the journey. You've got all this stuff. you got the canoe. you got 4,000 kilometers ahead of you. Is there anything you're thinking? Is there any regrets? Or were you excited to go? No, I was excited to finally get underway because I spent months planning and preparing and uh, looking forward to it. But it was a little bit daunting, to be honest, because... You know, at that point, I had the entire route looming ahead of me, and that was almost 4,000 kilometers. And to be entirely honest, I didn't know whether or not I'd be able to do it, but I figured you only live once, so I've got to give it my best chance or my best shot because I'd rather, you know, try and fail than not try at all. But with 4,000 kilometers of wilderness in front of me and a whole ton of factors outside my control, like the wind and the ice and the winter, um, I really didn't know if I'd make it. So I just tried to set all that aside and forget about the end goal and say, um, I, like, I kind of visualized in my mind, like, uh, a donkey with a carrot on a string in front of me. <laughs> I could just say like, all I have to do, this isn't a journey alone across the Arctic. It's just a journey, uh, beyond that mountain or through this lake or around the next river bend. And then I can make camp and it's a whole new day tomorrow. So I just took it kind of one step at a time. Uh, put one foot in front of the other, 
one paddle stroke after another, slow and steady wins the race. That was my approach. So when I looked at the, I watched the movie and I read a little bit of the book and from what I could tell, one of the biggest challenges was bugs. It just seemed like they were awful all the time. And I just, I kept thinking to myself, why didn't this guy bring some bug spray? He's got all that stuff. <laughs> he didn't even bring any bug spray. No, I did pack bug spray. I just don't use it very often. I'm very lucky. Um, where I grew up, the forest was very swampy, like in those woods I was always in, uh, just like black, foul, swampy water. So I was so used to mosquitoes from like the earliest age that I have a really high tolerance for bug bites. And I, I, I consider myself blessed in that regard because, you know, I do guided hikes here in Canada where I take people in the woods and teach them about different mushrooms and things. And everyone will be like, oh, the bugs are so bad. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? This isn't bad at all. <laughs> uh, but in the midsummer, in the southern Arctic, in the far, in the high Arctic, there are no bugs. But in the southern Arctic, uh, you have like a really intense black fly mosquito season when all those little tundra pools, uh, when the ice has melted on them, it's just they produce literally billions of black flies and mosquitoes. And it's incredibly intense. Uh, you can see that in some of my photos on Instagram and videos where you have literally storm clouds that just you can't see because the bugs are everywhere. And if you're huffing and puffing, you'll just start inhaling bugs, like swallowing them. I've lost count of how many mosquitoes I've swallowed. So that can be really bad. That's revenge. Uh, I mean, it serves them right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wear, so when they're really bad like that, I would wear a mesh bug net over my head, which offers at least some relief. But eventually I always find the bugs they figure out a way to crawl inside the mesh bug net. And I had a little bit of bug spray, which I used really sparingly, like when it would get really bad. But in my experience, the bug spray in a place like that, we were so isolated. Uh, it only lasts for like 10 minutes before the bugs would just come right back at you. <laughs> Ferocious as ever. Right. And uh, you just have to kind of do mind over matter. Of course, it was fairly cool on my journey. So I was always wearing like long sleeves and I had those tucked in and, you know, long pants and that kind of stuff to limit any exposed skin. But the other advantage I had is that I would often be canoeing and those Arctic lakes can be truly vast, like, you know, hundreds of miles. So the wind uh, would usually, when I was out on the water, would usually blow the bugs away. It was just not when I was on land, uh, they would become a problem. When I, when I was canoeing in the Boundary Wanderers, one thing I noticed is you get on some of these, you know, the big paddling sessions where you're going for like an hour, right? And you go from this, I'm feeling good, to, wow, I'm getting tired, to holy shit, my arms are on fire, <laughs> to I don't feel anything at all. And then you can just keep going and keep paddling. <laughs> if you just push through, you can just almost keep paddling forever. I, I don't know what it was, but you could just keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, your body will adjust to the routine. Like once you've gone for a week or so, you really break into it. And yeah, as you alluded to, your stamina will improve, your muscles will get used to the routine. And then you can start putting in really long days. Like when I first started my journey, um, I was only doing like nine hours, maybe on average of canoeing. And I want to remind everybody, it's, it's like 24 hour daylight right now, right? I mean, it's, yes, it's yes, daylight yes. all the time. So when you're paddling nine hours, it's, it's daylight the whole time. Yep. Yeah. 24 hours of daylight in the right. summer months because up above the Arctic circle. So the sun just kind of moves across the sky, but never really dips below the horizon. Uh, but eventually I moved that up to about 13 hours a day. Of paddling and on certain days if conditions were right i might paddle for 15 hours and i think that's just you're you're giving yourself the best training you can just by doing day after day of paddling you're improving your stamina and your muscles so that you can eventually just do those really long days 
And it doesn't really, you don't even really notice it. It just feels like normal. At least I was lucky that it felt normal to me. Did you arm um, wrestle anyone when you got all the way over to the other side? <laughs> Did you give it a try? No, it never crossed my mind to do that. What a shame. Maybe next time I'll yeah, remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> you could totally sandbag somebody and just like show up at the bar, you know, and just, you know, arm wrestle for drinks, something like that. So I was thinking of the bugs as the biggest challenge, but what was your biggest challenge on the entire, on the injury? What, what struck you as difficult to overcome? The most difficult aspect was actually the wind. Uh, the wind on the Arctic tundra can be very powerful. You can have over a hundred mile an hour wind and on the Arctic tundra, there's no trees to break it up. So you didn't have wide open space. And on those lakes, uh, there it would often be the case that I have to be like more than a mile offshore because if I stuck close to shore, then my route would double in length because many of those lakes are just riddled with bays and islands and uh, all sorts of little indents. So if you tried to trace out every single bay, it would add uh, a huge amount of distance to your route. So sometimes I have no choice, but I have to cut across a bay. And some of those bays are really big. Like some are too big for me to cut across. They might be 30 miles from one side to the other. And if the wind was a factor, I would have to stay close to shore. But no matter what, I still had to take risks where I'd have to paddle across big open water. And the wind uh, would be pretty frightening when I was like a mile from land and I'm in my little 15 foot canoe and I could see white caps or I can see ice flows and the wind is blowing me around. I mean, sometimes the wind is so powerful there that it's a problem even on dry land uh, where I would have to carry my canoe over my head. I'm trying to put the canoe over my head and the wind is like knocking me off my feet or throwing me around because it's so strong or I'm just trying to keep my tent up in really high winds and there's nothing but like desolate rock. It's like I'm on a moonscape, so it's hard to peg the tent down. Uh, so I would say overall wind was the most uh, dangerous and difficult factor in my journey. So you met a, uh, you're not supposed to meet anybody, but you did meet a guy that had a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, right? You, yeah, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say it was a cabin. Uh, you're talking about the compound. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was just like you said. That I was watching one of the interviews. This like some rich guy or something tried to invite you in for lunch. And yeah, 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 yeah. Tell us about you know <laughs> yeah, seeing that and, and everything. Yeah, so that was like a compound. Well, I didn't get close to it. I was probably like still a mile away. Uh, I couldn't even really make out what it was. I just saw that there was clearly man-made objects on the distant shore there. I could see like metal glinting in the sunlight, and I met a guy in a boat, a young guy. Uh, he was probably like 20 years old. He came out of the motorboat and he said, "Oh, what are you doing?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm just canoeing alone across the Arctic." And uh, he said, "Oh, you should come to the compound. Uh, you know, the guy who owns it is like 95 years old. And he, he owns an airline, and uh, he just sounds like, well, what is that? Because I, I thought maybe it's like you know a fishing camp or something." He said, "No, no, just built it for family and friends so we could fly in here and catch fish to our heart's content." And uh, they offered, you know, he offered, you know, come, come stay the night here and we'll give you some orange juice. Uh, but I declined because I didn't want to interrupt my routine. And I was a little bit shy, to be honest, after so long by myself. How long were and you at that point? How far into the trip was it? That would probably have been, let me think, near the end of July. And I started in May. So uh, two, two months or so, uh, at least. And I just didn't really want to, I didn't really want to interrupt my, my journey. So I declined the orange juice and I just kept going and I don't really have any regrets. I said, Hey, uh, next time I'm here, I'll stop in. So <laughs> next time I find myself canoeing in the Arctic there, maybe I'll, I'll stop in next time. And you don't want to, you know, you start 
dabbling back in humanity, it almost might be hard to get out of, you know, sleeping on rocks for two months, you kind of get used to it. But then all of a sudden you're like laying on a sofa. That's the contrast to that might be tempting. Yes. Yeah. I think it would throw off my routine a little bit. And plus by that point, uh, well, I say by that point, but to be honest, probably right now, it's equally true is that my tent is like the greatest luxury in the world. I always think my tent is like a five-star hotel, especially when the bugs are thick as storm clouds. Uh, so really I have everything I want and need already. My canoe, my backpack, my tent, what more can you ask for in life? I'm as happy as can be. I really don't need anything else. So I just kind of wanted to keep going and doing my thing. How have you applied that perspective to regular life? You know, when you're out, when you've learned what it's like to have such a small amount of things for such an extended period of time, what does that do to everyday life once you're back in civilization? Well, I always say the only thing I really need to be happy is the forest on my doorstep. And I'm very lucky that I have that. And I'm looking outside of the snow and the woods as I'm talking to you guys. And I mean, that's, that's really uh, my favorite thing is just being outside in the woods. So I think if you, I mean, if you're lucky, you have something you love, um, try not to lose sight of that. And remember that that's the most important thing and you should cherish it and hold on to it. So uh, I consider myself, you know, pretty fortunate that I have that and that I'm uh, able to live in a place uh, with a forest all around me and I can go out and explore it whenever I want. So what does loneliness mean to you? When we, we talk about loneliness, it's usually just, you know, it's it's almost like a desperation type of thing. But does it mean different things to you? Do you does has these have these experiences changed your perspective of what loneliness is? Uh, well, I would say maybe one insight I have taken away from doing my solo expeditions, because I guess I should say expeditions plural. I do many many uh, solo journeys, not just the one across the Arctic, um, and I think that. If I were to write about it, I would say that loneliness is something that people experience in civilization. So you're lonely in a city when you're surrounded by millions of other people, uh, less so when you're actually out in the wilderness all by yourself, which is kind of a paradox. Seems, you know, how could that be the case? But uh, I think that when people feel lonely, it's because they see other people all around them and they don't have a strong uh, emotional bond to them, right? They're maybe they're single or they, you know, they, they want a closer family circle or friends or they want to feel like they're a part of a community. And if they don't feel that, nevertheless, they're you know, around dozens of other people on the subway to work or they're commuting or they're walking home through the streets and they can see all these other people inside their houses, that's when you start to feel lonely because um, you're aware of what's missing in your own life. Uh, so ironically, deep in the wilderness, I would say you're less likely to feel lonely because you're actually, you're fully engaged in what you're doing. You don't have time to dwell on anything. Uh, you know, you're so, the world is so fascinating all around you. You're looking at the, uh, the, the Northern lights or the midnight sun or this family of wolves walking along or, uh, you know, rocks that have been there since the dawn of time, the oldest rocks on the planet, billions of years old. Uh, there's so much going on. And of course you're busy. You got to paddle, you got to make fires. If you got to set up a tent, uh, so there's no time to feel lonely because you're so heavily engaged in everything you're doing. So I guess that's the only insight I would have um, derived from my experiences is that there's sort of this paradox that you would feel more lonely if you're surrounded by other people, but you didn't have those bonds. So what you're saying is that when you're out in the, in the wilderness, you're less focused on the reference point of yourself comparative to others than you are just surviving and doing. 
Exactly, yes. So you talk a little bit about the Coppermine River, and apparently that was a little bit of a hardship. What was, what's the Coppermine River? The Coppermine River is a uh, large, powerful river in Canada's Arctic. It's kind of right smack in the middle. It was sort of the halfway point of my journey. And this is a big river. Like, if you're going to use paddler's jargon, it has class four rapids on it, like really big whitewater rapids. There's canyons, um, there's falls, there's whirlpools, you name it. And my route, by necessity, uh, involved going up the Coppermine River. So that means I was traveling against the current, you know, actually trying to paddle against the flow of all that white water. And there was no there was no other way to do my journey. I mean, no matter what, if I started in the east and I went west, or I started in the west and went east, I would have to travel up river for a considerable amount of the journey because, well, that's just the way the geography is. Most of the rivers aren't flowing uh, horizontally across the map, west to east or east to west. They're flowing north, draining into the Arctic Ocean or the Beaufort Sea. And that was the part of my journey that I was most... Um, concerned about beforehand because I really didn't know if it was physically possible to go up the uh, the Coppermine River. I mean, I'd traveled in the past on many rivers upstream against the current that was just sort of came with the territory of doing my job. I'd always be out doing that kind of stuff, but I'd never attempted a river of that power um, solo before. But I just figured, you know, if I even make it to that part, like halfway through the Arctic, I'll be prepared by that point to uh, tackle tackle the river, and I'll just take it one step at a time, like the tortoise and the hare, slow and steady wins the race. That was my mindset, and fortunately, it got me through it. So, how did you how did you get through it? What were some of the challenges you had over? Obviously, you've got your bearings and your your are all greased up in your shoulders. You've been canoeing thirteen hours a day every day. How did you get up this river? Well, it really wasn't a question of strength. I don't think brute strength would count for a whole lot there. It was actually just more about being um, nimble and agility because it would be very easy to slip and hit your head there or twist an ankle uh, because the shoreline was always just like a chaotic jumble of boulders and rocks and cliffs and things. So I was often kind of like bouldering or scrambling along the shore or just sort of jumping from rock to rock. And then the canoe would be down in the water and I would be controlling it with a rope that I had tied onto the canoe. So I would be climbing along the rocks to get up ahead, like say 50 yards ahead, because I wouldn't want to go too far. And then once I got 50 yards ahead, then I would reel the canoe in with the rope and control it down below in the water. Now this is a little bit dicey because if it caught a wave or you know the rapids the wrong way or it hit a rock in the river, it could tip and capsize and everything would be swept away with it. All my gear, my emergency stuff uh, would all be destroyed. So that's why I was taking it slow and steady really studying each move before I made it and just trying to put one foot down and then reel the canoe up to me. So that's mostly how it was at the start where I began my journey up the Coppermine River. And then later on, I was able to start using other techniques. Um, Sometimes I'd be back down in the water in my canoe, standing upright in the canoe and just maintaining my balance with a big long pole about 10 feet long. You're not supposed to stand in a canoe, Adam. That's not good. (laughs) I was always told no standing up in the canoe. Yeah, that's what they say, the old school. Uh, But sometimes you just can't avoid it. It's a necessity. So I'd stand in the canoe, and I'd use my big, long pole, like a pole vaulter, to actually push off the bottom of the river and push my way along the cliffs or along the shore um, using the pole and just try to maintain my balance. There were a few places where it would get too deep, and I couldn't reach the bottom of the pole, and then I had no choice but to paddle 
like mad, like a windmill, just paddling like crazy to overcome the current, which would last for like, you know, just a few minutes before I could grab back onto a rock, catch my breath and continue. And there was just basically like that, you know, using those techniques to overcome the current and slow and steady make my way up river. What distance did that last for? How long did you have to traverse this way? Well, the Coppermine River, where I went up, it was about 200 kilometers long. So uh, I think in kilometers, so I'm Canadian. I've been trying to put everything into miles when I hear yards. When I <laughs> so good. We'll, we'll figure it out. Lots of I'm, I'm actually more interested in like duration. Like oh, This is such a long distance. How many days were you doing this for? Uh, I think that was about a week uh, wow. total. But, I mean, that. <laughs> That was only one part of my journey. There were many rivers on my journey, and there were other sections that were very similar to that, where I'd be going against the current, jumping from rock to rock, uh, doing the same sort of thing. But the copper mine was like one continuous section where I was facing big canyons and things. And there were places on the copper mine where um, I literally couldn't make headway. There was nothing I could do. And then I would have no choice but actually travel on foot, unpack the canoe, unload it, and then carry each load on foot up and around a canyon uh, before I could go back down into the water. And I would have wow. about four different loads to do because I couldn't carry them all at once. You know, I had my backpack, I had the canoe itself, and then I had two heavy watertight barrels which were loaded with my food rations and camera gear. So, so was this a fr- was you frust- were you frustrated at all? Or was this just kind of a, well, this is just the way it is. Can I just do four trips? No, and- yeah, I wasn't frustrated at all. I mean, uh, I was actually having the time of my life. I was like, yeah, this is very difficult and physically demanding and mentally fatiguing, but I don't think I would trade places with anyone else. Uh, I was very happy to be doing that. And I figured, you know, where if I wasn't here, what else would I be doing? Um, so no, I wasn't frustrated. It was just kind of take it uh, one day at a time. And uh, the challenge is part of the, the reward of doing a journey like this. So did you, were you physically different when you were done? What were the, some of the thing, the, the changes your body went through over the time? Well, I lost uh, a fair amount of weight. Uh, I was pretty, I mean, I wasn't really, I was fairly trim, I guess you would say, before I went on my journey. So I didn't have a whole lot of weight to lose, but I probably lost like 20 pounds. I don't know exactly because I didn't know on the scale, so I never actually stood on it. But I could tell in my photos that I could like see my wrist by the end, so I lost quite a lot. And I was bringing my belt in another few notches. Um, Other than that, the main thing physically... Well, aside from like a 3,000 bug bites, um, well, I lost my toenails because right, they turned black and fell off just from walking through the water and banging into rocks. But uh, my fingers got really sore. That was probably the only like muscle soreness I experienced. Uh, not so much my back or my arms and my shoulder, but my fingers. Because um, when I would be pulling, uh, the technique I described with the big long pole, 10 or 11 feet long, there were places in my journey where I'd have to do that all day, every day for weeks. And just um, from gripping a pole, like super tight, gripping it really hard, holding on for dear life and doing that hour on end without a break, my fingers were almost like stuck in that position, gripped around the pole. And at night inside my tent, I'd have to actually press them out and try to stretch them out. But they got so sore, it would almost like my, my fist would almost be involuntarily clenching because I spent so many days clenching that pole. So it took like a month or so after I got home for my fingers to feel normal again. And, uh, yeah, go back to normal. You mentioned that things can go wrong during this and can go very wrong during this. What, what did you, what, what would have happened? Like, is there a backup plan? 
plan? Or is there, in the case of an emergency, what was your plan? Uh, well, it depends on the emergency. I mean, and I guess anything could happen theoretically, like if your appendix could rupture. And if your appendix ruptures, then there is no real plan. If there's nothing anyone could do to help you. By the time a search and rescue helicopter got there, you'd already be dead. I mean, I know people who've had their appendix rupture in civilization, and they were rushed to the hospital, and the doctor or the surgeon says to them, you know, if you'd been here half an hour later, you would have died. You would have been beyond help. <laughs> and that's a matter of hours. So if you're in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, search and rescue is pretty limited in Canada. There's big parts of our north where we don't really even have search and rescue capabilities because it's so isolated and so remote. remote. Like, we'd be lucky if anyone found you within a week. Uh, and there have been canoeists that have just disappeared in Canada's wilderness and no one found them. And then, like, 20 years later, somebody finds their, their body or their skeleton. Um, so it would depend on the situation, right? Like if your appendix ruptured, there's not really anything, anything to be done. You've got to make your peace at that point. Uh, I think Jake's you, wondering, like okay. if you're hopping around on these rocks and you break your ankle, that's or, what you know, comes to mind. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that you think. I about. mean, are you, do you have a satellite phone with you? Do you have some way to reach the outside world if need be? Yeah. 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 I have a satellite phone. Um, I rented one for my journey. And yeah, a satellite phone is the only thing that would work there because, of course, an ordinary an ordinary phone or a cell phone wouldn't work because the nearest cell tower is like a thousand miles away. Uh, satellite phone works some of the time. I would say, in my experience, uh, the satellite phones I rent they only have about fifty percent effectiveness. And then you're always fiddling around with them, trying to get them to have, get a signal. You're, you know, you're aiming them. They have a little antenna, and you're aiming that at the sky and trying to get an uplink with the satellite. Usually, they cut out. and <laughs> They don't work all that well. Uh, maybe I should try to like get a better model or something. Um, but I mean, that's. I mean, basically, the mindset is: I think if you're going into the wilderness on a journey like that, you have to be of the mindset that you're responsible for your own safety, and you have to be confident enough that you can handle yourself in any situation. I think if you're going in there thinking, "I need someone to." come rescue me, you really shouldn't be there in the first place. You have to right, right. have all those skills. Like if I, if I, you said, you know, if you broke your ankle or twisted your ankle, I wouldn't think of that as an emergency. I would think of that as like, okay, this is just a, this is a bad day. We're going to have to fix this um, before we can continue. Or I'm going to have to abandon my intended route and invent a new route to go to the nearest community I can get to. Because of course, you know, if you look at the a map of Northern Canada, you're literally looking at tens of thousands of different rivers and lakes. Like there's an unbelievable amount. There's so many lakes in Canada that even today, uh, no geographer knows exactly how many there are. The best estimate anyone's come up with is around 3 million lakes in Canada. That's a heck of a lot. Um, so the point being is I can invent a new route. I don't have to keep going alone across the Arctic. I can turn around and go east or north or south and make a new and easier route to get me to the nearest uh, community. And if I'm going downstream, because I'm no longer going to try to go upstream, uh, that'll be vastly easier. Even with like a busted ankle, I can just sit in my canoe and let the current carry me downstream. And if I go downstream, uh, then I can probably get back to the community. So, you know, that's what I would do if there was a situation like that. Did you have any close calls? Was there anything that was like, whoa, that was almost it right there? Uh, Yeah, there was lots of close calls. Probably the closest call of all was actually on the Coppermine River where I was doing that technique I described where I was on the shore with the rope 
guiding the canoe down below in the water. Foot canoe is called tracking or lining. Um, and there was one big rock, like a rapid I had to go around, and there was a rock that jutted out from shore. So I had to do something that was very dicey, a, a maneuver to get the canoe to go, uh, like, bow or nose first further out into the water and then reel it back in. And as I was doing that, the current in the river caught the side of the canoe and started to tip it, and it almost capsized. Like, it was within a millimeter of the water line, and the water actually started to lap over. And if I had been, like, half a second too too uh, late in reacting, that would have sunk my canoe and I would have lost everything. And that would have been extremely bad. Like it would have just got swept away down through the rapids and there would be no recovering it. But fortunately, I in that situation, I've been, I've been lining and tracking before this, uh, I let the rope actually go slack. So I did the opposite of what my instinct would tell me. You know, your instinct would tell you, just hold on for dear life. But instead I let go uh, because I knew if I let go, the canoe would right itself and it would swing back around and go down along the bank where I could recover it. So that's what I did. Fortunately, uh, I didn't lose anything. But yeah, that was definitely, out of my entire journey, that was the moment where like uh, my heart stopped for a second, and I realized, well, that could have been really bad. Uh, you know, have to take a moment here to think that, and then get back in the saddle and keep going upriver. Any so runs with, with polar bears or grizzly bears or any, any animal friends? Did you make any animal friends or anything <laughs> like that? Oh, yeah. Lots. I mean, I saw hundreds of animals on my journey. Uh, many of them were very curious. You know, they'd come up and approach me. Uh, the Arctic wolves in particular, they're very curious. They're not really threatening, but they would often come up towards me and look at me. You know, they're very shy and skittish. If I made a noise or a sudden movement, then they would run away. Uh, the only threatening animals, I would say, are would bears and uh, muck fox, which are kind of like uh, Arctic bison, these big, shaggy, prehistoric-looking things from the Ice Age with big horns. Yeah, they got the big um, things on their heads so they can, they can headbang each other, you know, to prove who's got the, yeah. the biggest... <laughs> you know what? On the forehead. Yeah, so most of them are just gentle giants. All they want to do is graze on the tundra, but some of the big bulls could be aggressive, and they would come, like, charging by or galloping at me, and that was scary. Uh, most of the bears I crossed paths with weren't threatening there was the odd one that was kind of uh one came in my tent at night um or came to my tent at night uh they could be a little bit scary but usually nothing i couldn't handle just kind of scare them away uh bang a paddle or that kind of thing i would take the animals over the elements the wind the ice that kind of stuff worried me a lot more Right. And there's no, did you have like a gun or a, or i was going to ask like some what sort is of knife, your bear spray defense? What did, yeah what did you have yeah, so no guns uh, of any kind because I had to travel as light as possible. And also it's Canada, so there's so many regulations about carrying guns. Um, so I just took, uh, I just had bear spray and some bear bangers, which are like firecrackers, and I had my knife, and that was it. I mean, that that's, I, I would want to have a gun. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> I don't know if that's just the American in me, but, but I would want, I would want to have a gun. Yeah, uh, I know. A lot of uh, a lot of Americans always say that, like, "Oh, you you don't carry a gun? That's crazy." Um, but no, I don't. I don't carry one. <laughs> um, and I, I've literally crossed paths with hundreds of bears, and you know, almost every time I can scare them away. I have carried a gun. I have carried a gun on other expeditions. Uh, it has been a few years since I had a gun. But uh, when I'm like directly around polar bears, like if I'm on the coast. And there's lots of polar bears around. Then I carry a gun. That's actually government policy. You have to carry a gun, even in Canada, if you're right around the polar bears. 
Uh, but fortunately, I've never had to use it, which is a good thing. And I'm knocking on wood right now. Yeah. Uh, just to make it safe that way. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about your physical condition. I want to ask if you think you were the same person that you were when you left after all that time, that effort. Were you the same Adam as, as the guy who left months earlier? Yes, I think so. Uh, I know like that's maybe a bad answer that you want me to say. No, no, I am. I, I always try to just stay true to like the, the little kid inside of me. And I try to remember when I was like seven years old and the sense of like, um, of, uh, adventure that I had and that the world was just this amazing place full of mysteries and possibilities. And, uh, it was so exciting to be a kid and to think of all these things that our world has. And I try to stay true to that on my inside um, to this day. And I like to think that I, I haven't changed you know, the same way I am now because I really do get excited by the same things. Like, uh, not just what I do, like out in the, the wilderness, but, you know, I saw the other day uh, this uh, story about a new dinosaur species being discovered by paleontologists. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, when you see something like that, it brings out the kid inside of you and you, get, you remember that magic feeling of childhood. And I've been on some of the rivers in the Arctic where I've found fossils and things. And I always get so excited like a little kid when I see those fossils. So to me, I would say, no, I haven't changed. I still have that same sense of curiosity and adventure, uh, which drives me to go do these journeys and and expedition. It seems like you're saying almost um, that if you're not exploring new things, it's, it's getting old isn't necessarily getting old. Getting old is just not being young anymore. (laughs) <laughs> it's there's a difference i know what you and mean i'm just saying if you if you don't have that childhood wonderment anymore and if you lose that sense of of exploration that is when we get old when we're not experiencing new things when we're not making new experiences that's when we finally are almost giving up yeah absolutely i don't think i would ever really want to become like jaded and cynical i'd always rather be like positive and excited about the possibilities um, that each new day brings or which each new journey could offer me. That's, that's kind of my mindset, I think. So where are you off to next? How do you get your, how do you get your fix oh. now after doing something like this? Where do you need to go? Oh, there's an endless amount of expeditions I'm always bringing up. So one thing I haven't mentioned, um, is I, well, I'm an explorer in residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. So that's, uh, kind of like a Canadian version of National Geographic in the U.S. And as exploring residents there, I'm doing expeditions all the time, uh, focused on a whole variety of different things, ranging from looking for endangered species here in Canada, some of our rarest animals and birds. I go on expeditions to find them, photograph them, uh, document where they are, their habitat. Uh, I do expeditions that are more archaeology-based, history-based, where I'm looking for a lost explorer, using diaries and other clues to find any trace of them, like lost uh, old campsites or artifacts, uh, do expeditions, like more big journeys and things, everything under the sun. So uh, that's partly why I'm always so excited uh, to go out there and do these things because there's so many possibilities. Your life say, is you know, like I a choose-your-own-adventure <laughs> book, basically, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always say, you know, the world is so full of possibilities and Kansas wilderness is so vast that even if I live 10 lifetimes, I would never even begin to scratch the surface. There's just so much to see and so much to do. Well, as a, as a car guy and a road trip guy, I, my greatest goal of one of the, I mean, I've got road trips I've got planned all over the world, places I want to go, but I really want to drive to Tuk Tuk way up there. I want, I really oh, yeah. want to take that drive before, before everybody's doing it. I mean, at some point, everybody's going to start going up there and dipping their toes in the Arctic Ocean. 
I really want to I make don't that think drive. everyone yeah. is going to be doing that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been there. It's, uh, that road is still pretty rough. It was only open in 2018. So, uh, yeah, but it, it's definitely an experience. That's for sure. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, your book beyond the trees and where can people find it? Uh, so beyond the trees is my book about my journey alone across the Arctic in Canada. You can find it in any bookstore in the U S your options are more limited. I think for the most part, it's not in U S bookstores because I've always been told by the American publishing world that, uh, my books are too Canadian and Americans wouldn't like them. What, <laughs> what does that even mean? Boring. What does that mean? <laughs> what they say. Well, we can't uh, hear the way yeah. if we're reading the book. You don't say out funny. I mean, it's it's that's out. a <laughs> <laughs> out and about. <laughs> yes, but you can still order them if you're in the U.S. Uh, you can get them through Amazon for sure. And I'm yeah, not that's sure where I bought it. It was Amazon. Yeah, Amazon would definitely have them. So that was probably your best bet if you're in the U.S. to get them from Amazon. And it's possible that some other booksellers in the U.S. might have them. I just don't know. I don't know if like Barnes and Noble or anything like that carries them down there. Well, I definitely uh, will put a link up to Amazon in the show notes so people can can go take a book. I uh, take a look. I, I encourage everybody to go head over, pick up the book. And uh, Adam, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. I look forward to following you on Instagram. We'll post that in the show notes as well. If anybody wants to follow your journeys, I look forward to seeing where you go next. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. You take care of yourself, man. Thank you. Yeah. Bye bye. Well, that is incredible. I really encourage everybody to check the book out. It's great. I've got it. Um, there's there's a movie as well. If you, I think it's available on. I'm sure it's available on Amazon Prime. Um, anywhere that you want to look at a movie, it's just a few bucks. It's, it's well worth it. You can see. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so just mind boggling. It is. It truly is. And you know, it's funny how when you asked, "Are you the same person that you were when you left?" and he's like, "Yeah, I am." And you're, you're thinking like, oh, this, a journey of this magnitude must change your perspective a little bit. It has to. It may not change his perspective, but I think there's a lot of people that should maybe have their perspective changed a little bit by doing something like this. Yeah, absolutely. Even on a small scale, right? It, so I wanted to read like a little section from the end of the book. It's very short. Before you do that, though, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk Car Care is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are guys that are so passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product that they use it on their own vehicles. And they truly are great products. I love that it's simple, foolproof, two-step process. It's easy and gives an amazing finish. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order when you use the code OVERC. Crest. The discount code is good not only on oberkcarcare.com, but also detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. Go explore Oberk Car Care today. I like that. So in the book, at the end of the journey, he wrote, It was with a strange pang of sadness that I set up my tent on the tundra for the last time. I'd come so far, and despite the hardships, had so loved the journey, the routine, the wildlife, the plants, and rocks, the landscapes, the wilderness, the glorious skies, even the storms a little, that a part of me didn't want it to end. No stormy, icy lake I'd ever crossed, roaring massive river I'd pulled up, ice flows I'd pushed on through, or pathless portage over chaotic rocks seemed half so daunting and demoralizing as the thought of what my email inbox might look like upon my return. (laughs) 
Yeah. I even just reading that, I kind of get that sense of dread. Yeah. I mean, obviously you want to be home again, right? I mean, right. Like sitting on a couch would but be it's, great. It's it's not even the responsibility, but it's the the it's it's so small in comparison to what you would have just accomplished. Yeah. The coming back and having people ask things of you or having to do these menial tasks just seems like such a letdown. It does. And I think that's why you have to keep doing it. It's why you have to keep keep exploring, right? I mean Now my everyday seems so menial. It does. And meaningless. It does. Everything almost everything we do, we put such high importance on. Right. We put a premium on importance. I put a premium on waking up at 7:30 this morning and looking up day trading news. I got to get up. I got to go. I just got to it. Yeah. Meaningless. It is. And maybe that's the whole point of exploration is that contrast and that perspective. Yeah. That just it so you can, and I think like I always talk about contrast, you need contrast in your life so you can judge your experiences properly. Right. So you can be happier, understand how to deal with heartbreak and sadness, how to achieve joy all comes from contrast and exploration. On the last day of your life, when you're going to die, the only thing you have, and this is getting very esoteric, the only thing you have are a collection of memories and experiences that formed you. Yes. So cultivating experiences, be they good, bad, or otherwise, is basically the only thing you have. And you just need to keep on creating those for as long as possible and just maintain youth. That's it's, it's what it's all about. We will see you guys. Uh, today is Monday. Right. So we'll see you on Friday with a new uh, news episode. I look forward to seeing you then. Take care of yourselves. On that note, go explore. Do it.